Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On The Money here on News Talk 1493.9 FM. You're invited to join the program by calling 217-356-9397 or send a text on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 217-351-5357. Opinions and views expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of the station. And now, On The Money with your host, Paul Rudy. Well, good morning, everybody. This is, as they said, Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's On The Money radio show. I'm here with two of my regular guests, Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, good to yeah. see you. And, of course, I have certified financial planner professional Ryan Repko with me. He works with me at Rudy Wealth Management. Ryan, good, good morning. morning. Assume you're taking good care of my grandkids. I am. You can call in with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 351-5357. You can also email your questions at talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Got that out of the way. It's probably good advice. Boy, the, I think the radio station's running for cover on the front end right. of this. I, that's just what Paul thinks. It's not what we think. <laughs> anyway, there's a lot of people that say that. Um, well, Fred, uh, <laughs> you know, strange times in some ways. There seems to be so many people that are depressed about so many economic worries, but then we have a stock market at all-time highs. The Standard & Poor's 500 index is up about 25%. I think... A, Broad global portfolio is up not too far from that. Uh, small cap stocks up 24, 25%. Um, really small companies up maybe 30. And I think it's taken a lot of people by surprise. And later I'm going to talk about how, as it typically plays out, the retail investors kind of late to the party uh, based on the flow of funds going on. Right. Um, can you make any sense? Uh, uh, I mean, is there seems like there's so much chaos, but yet markets at all-time highs. And right. I think that's really you know, confounding to some people. Well, I suppose in, in one sense, <clears throat> we always talk about how no one would have believed where we are right now compared to a year ago or a year and a half ago. And in a sense, uh, uh, there's a lot of optimism just because we're getting back uh, closer and closer to normal. So I think that uh, that's all built in. And again, there's uh, the expectation now, which I guess is – under some uh, pressure about things getting better in the future with uh, pent-up demand and the, the hope of uh, getting rid of the supply chain issues and the fact that uh, vaccinations are readily available to almost everyone now. So those are all very positive kind of things. But again, the stock market doesn't always respond to right. uh, things like that. So, so And it's been there a long time. So either the, the uh, stock market was very prescient a year ago or so. When things look really bad, the market uh, came back pretty quickly. So. Yeah, Ryan, with uh, you know, with these fresh new highs, are you back to rebalancing again, or are you finding that there's a more frequent need this year to rebalance? You know, uh, sell from what's working. Uh, you know, the stock market and getting it back to the you know the allocation that we you know designed for the client. Yeah, I, I, we're definitely doing more rebalancing. I think you know. Finally, we're on the good side of it. You know, in 2020, the, the story was the opposite side. It was the inverse that we were rebalancing so much on the downside because the market seemingly just kept dropping, whereas in the story of 2021 seems the market seemingly just goes up, which, of course, we know is not the case, but that's been a very, you know, calm, yeah. stable story for 2021. So we're definitely seeing a lot more rebalancing because portfolios are not 
you know, going downward as much as this continue to rise. And I was, I was talking with a client a couple of weeks ago now, and their investments were about 60% stock, 40% bonds. And I looked at the return of their, their portfolio over this past year, and it was like north of 12%. And they said, well, is that good? And I said, that's phenomenal. <laughs> it's like for a 60% portfolio, when, right. when, when you, when you know that kind of just the, the, you know, the, Expectation should be maybe around somewhere six to eight percent. Right, we're shooting the lights out, yeah. and and it's funny that and it was an observation for me that as a client who's in you know a you know good part of their retirement already, they're doing well with their investments. They had no flooring or grounding to know is that good, bad, is that normal, and I just had to remind them like this is not your normal year. Don't don't take this as like this is what we should expect going forward, but rather let's recalibrate our mental note and and remember that. You know, we should be expecting a lot less than that. Yeah, you consider the expected return for the broad U.S. markets probably, when you're thinking of compounded return, somewhere around 10% historically. And if you have a portfolio that's 50 or 60% in stocks that's mm-hmm. done better than that this year, you know, it just shows you how strong. And that's with no help from the bond market. Right. L- yep. Literally no help. I mean, if you look at short-term, high-quality fixed income, uh, I, I guess right now junk bonds are shooting the lights out, and some people are concerned about that. But if you stay with high-quality, reasonable, maturity, uh, fixed-income-producing instruments, uh, you know, if you're earning 1% or 2%, you're lucky. And so, you know, you take a 60-40 portfolio, <laughs> most of that, if not all that returns, come yeah. been driven from the stock market. And they said, Fred, that 60-40 portfolio is dead. There's been yeah. seemed like article after article saying, "Oh, it's just never going to work any longer yeah. because interest rates are so yeah. low." No, yeah, no, no one knows about the future, <clears throat> but the last uh, ten years or so, uh, for all the sophisticated investing in pension funds and foundations and so on, the sixty uh, forty would have beat almost all of them over the the ten year period. Yeah, it's amazing. I and, and kind of in that light, it's a good segue. I read an article um, that, that basically talked about how. You know, and I don't really beat that drum anymore like I used to, but the active versus passive, that is, should I just buy an index fund or should I hire a fund that's run by professional managers that are trying to do better than a particular index? And one of the arguments has always been, you know, when there's a lot of volatility or there's certain markets where (laughs) the professional manager is going to be able to take advantage of things. And certainly, uh, as this article said, one of the most volatile markets in decades, active fund managers underperform again. And it's always it's uh, basically just said it's it's yeah, always uh, for active managers. Now is not the time, but in the future when it's different, it will be the time. But it never quite uh, gets there. You talked about it earlier, though. Uh, I'm not sure what you meant by retail investor being late to the party. But if you're an individual investor, you're probably already at the party. So if, if you're doing what uh, we've been talking about, you're already sure. invested in. So they were um, looking for the data here. Um, basically, they were looking at the, f- uh, in fact, it was, came from, I saw the article and I have it here. Um, well, it doesn't matter. I could do it sort of for memory. They were, so it was, uh, uh, Ed Yardani wrote an article uh, about, this topic of fund flows and what he does, he monitors, you know, stock and yeah. bond fund flows and uh, stock mutual funds versus bond mutual funds. And basically he showed the data said that f- up until the last four months, uh, there was more money going out of stock mutual right. funds. And anyway, he came to the conclusion and yet trillion dollars or so during the same time went into bond funds. Right. And, so, you know, you think of this market, the stock market always fights, you know, climbs this wall of worry. Yeah. 
Hmm. So it was just his way, and I've heard others look at it that way, saying, look, it's it, retail, and I'm not even sure it's retail. He yeah. used the term retail. Yeah. But investors, human beings by their very nature, tend to, uh, you know, always living the last war, right. Right, fighting the last war. And so now that the, you know, people start seeing headlines, the market's doing so well, now they're starting to come in over the last four months as opposed to prior to that, right. where were they? And it's, you know, it seems to be a consistent yeah. message because, well, things about human beings don't change that much over time. I mean, it's just our nature. Yeah, and that's sort of the, uh, the second part of the uh, passive idea. The first part of the passive is investing in an index. The other part is don't come and go based on your uh, market timing inclination. So, again, these are probably uh, market timers. They think the market's going to go down or whatever. But if you just stay there, uh, you get the best of both worlds, the low cost and the uh, growth over a long period of time. Yeah, that, that's you – know, funny thing we're talking about this. I had an interesting call. This is a little off topic, but you'll appreciate it in a minute here, Paul. Uh, I had someone power wash my house for the first time. And I ended up getting the call back from the owner. He says, hey, where do you work? And I tell him, you know, I work in a financial advisory firm. He says, where? And I tell him Rudy Wealth. And he says, I think Paul Rudy came to my classroom at Eastern University many years ago. I said, oh, gosh, I think that had to have been about eight to ten years ago. And he said, yeah, that was the time. Right. And he said, and this is why I'm telling you this, he says, I remember him talking about the difference between active and passive and I just got it. It was like it clicked. And like, you know, you don't expect kind of some of these stories from the past to pop back up or that somebody latches onto something and presumably what, a intro financial, you know, program Probably. class in, at Eastern University. But it is. It's like that made a difference to that, that person to the point that he remembers it here roughly 10 years later. Um, I think it's, it's interesting. It's like, well, if you could just get people early or in this case in college – get people to understand the difference, whereas most people have no clue what, if you ask them to define active versus passive, how that could potentially really change their investing trajectory over the next 40, 50 years of their investing time horizon. Or, or do you guys think if people at some point in life, whether it's through their educational process, I mean, I think before you get out of high school, there's just certain, you should be able to understand the the, the probability of things just in a, in basic ways but how many investors i wonder if you did a survey how many investors have a realistic view of the capital markets like what would you expect the broad u.s market to earn over your lifetime or the bond market to to be over your lifetime or inflation for that matter mm. i think most people would be way off the mark and <laughs> and if you're not anchored to realistic expectations that's where things go wrong Right. And um, the other thing, if, if you're a passive person, uh, you already said you, you don't necessarily have to read the Wall Street Journal. I read the Wall Street Journal for uh, pleasure. I don't you read it for, uh, for uh, um, tips about the market. So the point is, if you're, you're in a passive uh, situation, uh, you, you don't have to worry about what's happening every day, good or bad, uh, guessing whether it's a positive or negative development. You, you just hang in there. There's an interesting... Uh, article about uh, uh, 20 years uh, too late, but uh, uh, James Glassman, the person who wrote the uh, Dow 36,000, uh, uh, came out and said, well, I, I'm finally right. He said it was going to occur in 2002 or 2003, and then 20 years later. But he, then he, he backed off and said, what you really need to do is think about the long-term invest passively and take the advantage of compound interest, which is what we, we say all the time. But he originally, he said the Dow was going to jump up 
uh, from wherever it was, uh, a few thousand. I up think to, it was, yeah, I think it was. I don't remember where it was when he wrote the book, but I would say sub 10,000. Right, but it was basically a timing yeah. issue. He said that suddenly people are going to realize the uh, equity premium is not really much of a risk, and suddenly stocks will become more valuable compared to bonds. And he said it was going to happen uh, in like two or three years, but uh, obviously it's taken 20 years. But again, that 20 years has been ups and downs, but at the end, you're in pretty good position. Yeah, I think he was basically making, as you said, a timing call saying this is going to happen sooner than people expect. Yeah. And that would be based back then, as I recall, would have been based on pretty extraordinary returns. Yeah. Whereas when I told clients back when the Dow was 10,000 that they would see 30,000 in their lifetime, presumably for retired people, you know, some, you know, that might be 20, 25 years, you know, since 10,000. You know, it doesn't. That doesn't really sound that feasible. But when you think about it, that's just barely a five percent, you know, increase in price. Yeah. And I use that a lot now. I'll get people that you know might send me a. I get clients that send me articles. What do you think about this? And it's usually a. What do you think about this problem hmm. uh, that we're having in the economy or politically or whatever? And I, and I try to do it not in in kind of a flippant way. I say, well. I don't think too much about it because I figure 20 years from now, the Dow probably will be at 90,000. And sort of if we, if this problem causes the market to temporarily decline by 30%, I'll say 10,000, 12,000 points, it's not really going to have any, it's not going to be relevant to me and my family over the next 20 or 30 years. And I think that's really hard to do, to think mm-hmm. about. We see all these reasons to run for this. Every day in, if, in any financial publication, I could find no fewer than five reasons why it might be a good idea to get out of the stock market and sell while you can now. It's been that way for 38 years of my career. Uh, but to focus on what the direction of the next 1,000 or 3,000 points when it's the next 20 or 30 or 40 or 60,000 points that matter that you'll probably see in most people's lifetimes, try to bring that perspective of – yeah, let's make sure we understand the big picture, uh, that time is your biggest asset, if you have time. Um, I think there's some confusion there, because if you take the 70-year-old client, they might not be thinking in the same time frame. But even then, for most people with money, they find out in their 80s and 90s that it's really, after all, probably wasn't their money. It's going to be transgenerational money to secure you know, their children and grandchildren's livelihoods. And so even with that perspective... I probably just naturally have a longer – my views of, of what a reasonable time horizon are probably longer than, than the average bears, I suppose. Yeah. I think that is a huge part of it for most people is you see what's immediately in front of you, what's yelling the loudest, and usually that's you know somebody on TV telling you the, the Dow's down 1,000 points today. It's the worst decline in five months, which sounds scary. That, that happened this year. It was like a 1,000-point decline. My wife said, what's going on? Like, is something wrong? And I said, no, this is like a 2 or 3% correction. If you could even use that term, it's like it's, you should expect that all the time. And it, just, it was just like an interesting moment. She goes, ah, I should have known better. <laughs> you know, growing up is in your household, Paul, she's like, ah, I should have known that was, <laughs> that was a trick. <laughs> and I, had, you know, I just had to you know, explain real calmly, like, of course, you know, <laughs> nothing to be worried about. It's like, an, it's like waking up every day. Of course I expect to wake up unless something terribly wrong goes, goes on. I'm going to get back to that article from Ed Yardane. It says, inflow into equity mutual funds plus exchange-traded funds was $270 billion over the past 12 months through September. 
made the best February, uh, best since February 2018. But this series, in other words, these inflows, have been po- in positive territory during only four months through September following 23 months of negative readings. Right. That means until the last four months, the prior two years, the, you know, it says investors in general were selling more than they were buying, right. not believing that the stock market could go higher. I, I find that pretty uh, common. Fred, there's a lot. I'm reading a lot of articles. One of the most recent ones was, uh, uh, I can't remember his name now. Uh, He's one of the bears. I think he went to PIMCO. Uh, Muhammad el And uh, he's just one of many of the what people you probably call experts or gurus that are saying the Fed is really behind the curve. Um, there's too much stimulus in this, and we're building this massive asset bubble. Uh, he tends to be on the bearer side, yeah. I find. You know, it's just... Mm. I remember in the great meltdown, you know, uh, well, I guess, well, until that would have been a year ago, March, the, the pandemic breakdown. It was talking about how the stock market could go down 30%. And it's like, well, okay, yeah, it, it can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nobody was talking about the market then going up 100%. Right. That's what's missing right. in these. But what's your take on all the stimulus now? You look at, we have maybe $4 trillion more in money supply than we had just sitting there in demand deposits. There's an awful lot of money out there chasing, evidently because of supply chain chain issues, uh, limited supply. Right. Well, I think that uh, it's obviously a concern. I think people, economists are getting more concerned. Uh, uh, Lawrence Summers, former Secretary of Treasury and President of Harvard, is a old-fashioned Democrat, which we used to call a liberal Democrat, but right. he's now uh, concerned about the, the potential for inflation of this, this kind of buildup because we've gotten away now for, I guess, 13 years with a huge uh, increase in what we used to think of as a money supply without any consequences. But now, given all the other things happening, I think there is a more uh, more potential. But again, I think it's very likely a, uh, a temporary kind of thing. I, I, I guess I can't imagine the supply chain issue going on for years and years. So I think most of the things will probably resolve themselves. And again, <clears throat> inflation is not just a one-time jump like an oil crisis or something of that sort. It's a continuing increase uh, month after month, year after year. And I think once we get past the uh, year-ago comparisons when things were really uh, not very good, I think they will, it will calm down. Now, again, I think everyone is willing and probably be happy to sign off on uh, three or four percent inflation for a while, so, but uh, I, I can't see. Well, I don't call hyperinflation six percent, but I can't see, you know, high single digits uh, happening very very long. Yeah, I, I kind of in that camp, but you know, now today the headlines are wholesale prices rose eight point six percent. I mean, that's the head of an art, uh, a highlight of an article, mm-hmm. and talking about it's the highest annual pace in records going back eleven years. Which is kind of strange yeah. period just to think about right. the last eleven years on a euro so eight point six from a year ago and that's right. the producer prices and producer prices are kind of the inputs right uh, to the factories et cetera I take it yeah. you know and then we, then people do stuff right. with that and then right. sell it to you and I right. <coughs> excuse me um, th- that's going to scare a lot of people um, right. and then once inflect I- I'm worried that inflation expectations will start rising or are rising yeah and sometimes can that be a kind of its own vicious death spiral in, in a sense? Sure, b- both ways. But uh, again, and that, the, the problem is that uh, 
once it became ingrained, you have to break it. And that was the uh, recession of the early 1980s where uh, the uh, Fed decided they had to do something about it. And you, you can't just start cutting back gradually. You have to ha- make it very vivid. So there was a, a real uh, shock in, in those terms. And now I think there's a, it's a big deal now about the Fed cutting back on uh, buying bonds. But that's not, that's not reducing. It's just not expanding right. as, as uh, fast as before. Yeah, so it's really so. There's just a lot of liquidity in the system, and I think we're feeling that. But I'm not as freaked out as you know. So I guess it's an industry. Well, you know, the question though is, uh, let's say that we sincerely believe that there's going to be maybe six percent inflation for a few years. What are you going to do? <laughs> right. You know. Well, that's a good question. What What do you do? Uh, does that mean people should change their investment allocation yeah. or their investment approach? I mean, a lot of people naturally think about gold, but <laughs> really since 1980, if you looked, that's uh, about a 40-year time span. Yeah. Um, I think the gold return average of minus almost a half percent uh, per year annually over that time. Yeah. And then you look at the annualized returns for large U.S. company stocks, almost 8 percent. For uh, U.S. bonds, maybe 1.2 percent, uh, but about 6 percent. And then for cash, about one, one and a half percent. So certainly it doesn't, gold's track record, of course it can at times mm-hmm. shine spectacularly, I guess, during inflation. But as a, as a long-term store, right. it just doesn't, at least the last 40 years. And I, I, I could be accused of cherry picking the last four years because yeah. you're going from an all-time high. But the, the, same the, point, yeah. Yeah, the same point, though, um, the, the question I've asked many times is, so you think gold's a good hedge? Uh, Buying five uh, percent of your portfolio in gold is not going to uh, give you a lot of protection. If you really believe it, you got to go much deeper, and that, <clears throat> that's a pretty risky kind of situation. Yeah, I think people naturally, Ryan, you know, the, all these news of all-time highs in the stock market. Uh, as Paul Jr. wrote uh, in his News Gazette column, I think maybe a week ago. He highlighted an article in Research by Dimensional Fund Advisors. But basically, I think a lot of people think of that as like it's somehow it has to be impacted by the laws of gravity and what goes up must come down. But that's mm-hmm. when you have a, a positive expected return for stocks over the long run, that really doesn't wash too well. And I, I think in that article, he highlighted the fact that, you know, if you look out a year, and it's, not, it's you know, about 30% of the time the stock market's, you know, on a monthly basis is making new highs. I mean, that kind of makes sense. If you have a positive expected return, and there is this permanent uptrend, at least historically so. Uh, I guess it shouldn't be so unusual to go to all-time yeah. new highs. But it really doesn't signal then that the market's expected return is higher or lower necessarily because when they look at the data a year out or X number of years out, it's hard to distinguish the returns from non-all-time highs mm-hmm. compared to all-time highs. Yeah, I think for most people, they just Im- immediately assume we're at a new all-time high, we're very close, then there must be a pullback. Uh, whereas, as we know in the industry, you can have very long like bull runs where the, the stock market continues to go and continues to climb. And those are the most dangerous times for a lot of investors because what they immediately assume, I'll, I'll assume these are like the pessimists here. They assume, well, it's at its, its highest time. I, I know, and I put no in air quotes, there's going to be a decline. I've got to pull some money out or I've just got to not invest the way I was and I'll wait for the pullback. Then I'll get my money back in, and I'll, I'll ride it on the way up. Obviously, the problem there is we, nobody knows when that decline is going to happen. And what you more than likely will f- come to find out, 
uh, to your own detriment is that you've missed out on this historic run or just the, the normal returns that you would have got had you just maybe continued to, to put in your money in your 401k month after month after month instead of trying to time the market uh, and think that you know more than the industry yeah. at large. Also, uh, uh, 2008 is getting uh, farther and farther away in the real rear view mirror. So when uh, Ryan was talking about taking everything in stride, uh, it's easy now. It wasn't easy in the uh, uh, fall of 2008. So, again, even the most uh, seasoned and steeled person is going to uh, waver at some point. But the point is you have to expect that and, and deal with it when it comes. Well, it, yes. I mean, you get, a, you get a decline like that, at least historically, you know, maybe – uh, once in your lifetime, your investing lifetime. Uh, turns out we had two of them in yeah. ten years in the in the lost decade, two thousand through two thousand and nine. And you're right, Fred. I mean, when I think of all the conversations I had with people that literally yeah. just wanted to get the heck out, you know, yeah. as what the you know the pundits on TV were saying, get out now while you can. Yeah. Uh, which all you know, and I, I think I saved all but two of them. I think two yeah. of them didn't follow right. my advice because it sticks out in my brain. Yeah. You don't forget those things, and most people have never had to sit across the table from somebody that you know thinks that maybe they ruined their family's life, and right. they then they're just panicked, and they just you know they're just their imagination's running wild. It was very difficult, and and a lot of these people a year before that would have said, "Oh no, declines don't bother me. I'm I'd go right. in and buy more." So it always gets back to every past decline looks like an opportunity on right. the chart, but when they hit you real time, because I think, Fred, let's see if this makes sense to you. It's not just that my investment portfolio is going down. It's people are out of jobs. Right. You know, kind of every, that's just a symptom of an economy that's kind of coming apart. Right. And so it's not just my 401ks down by 50 or 60%. You know, my, my spouse lost a job or my, one of my kids lost their job. And in the face of that, as you as you stated, Fred, that's it's almost more than the av- than the tip- right. than most people can do. Is well, to, to and also the course. Uh, you talked about two in a lifetime, but uh, the first one didn't bother me in the slightest bit. Uh, yeah, early two thousand, it went down, and you see that that happens sometimes. It'll come back and so on. But two thousand eight really was a I think one of a kind because of the underlying fear about the stability of the whole financial system. So that was one where it was very difficult to be uh, have equanimity in, in well, a situation for, like that. Absolutely. In fact, uh, and I probably have said this before, you know, it was a time in my life, you know, the bank I started and owned and sold, but I still kept a large position in it. You know, it was on fire at the same time and in trouble. I had clients whose, you know, retirement portfolios looked like they were just in harm's way and I was starting to even get like towards I wouldn't say panicky but really like overly concerned probably and it was my wife that said well I thought you had all these fancy programs (laughs) and you know that you make changes and you do things and it's they're supposed to withstand this type of stuff and it hit me sitting there that day going like you know you're right (laughs) my clients Lives really aren't at risk. Okay. We might have to make some modest adjustments for some people because we had anticipated, not predicted. Yeah. And there's a big difference. It's just saying any worthy, any retirement plan, you know, worthy of the name of a plan, uh, should has to expect that not only could that happen, something even worse than that, and it shouldn't 
completely derail a perfectly good retirement plan. Yeah. And any plan's got to be able to bend, and in some cases bend quite a bit. And what I mean by bend is is be flexible in spending. Somebody who comes into retirement, presumably with like a 30-year retirement ahead of them, they, they can't come in with the mindset that, you know, heck or high water, I need every dollar every month regardless or, or at, like, regardless of what shows up at us in the stock market or the bond market, there has to be some flexibility, both on the downside and then, of course, on the upside. Um, because if somebody comes in with that expectation, you're only going to set yourself up for probably uh, anger and frustration when an advisor or you have to make the determination to make a, a spending reduction. So anybody that I could give the simplest advice to would be just the, the patience and flexibility in retirement will go a long way in pay, paying dividends, I think, for a retiree psyche. And anybody who thinks that it's, it's $2,000 a month every month for the next 30 years will only be setting themselves up for a bit of disappointment. I think flexibility is probably the key thing. You know, I could say almost nearly four decades and say, what's the one attribute that retirees need and flexibility? And that doesn't mean you, you have to be in a position where you cut your spending by 50%. It's just saying flexibility to the point where let's stress test the plan against some really harsh conditions. Let's take a look that if that happened, this is you know what you're spending. We might go from 5000 a month to $4,500 a month. Are you going to be able to handle that financially, not emotionally? We're not talking about emotionally. Financially, is there is there a buffer? I really kind of like to think of it, and I'm really starting, in, in maybe for some time, been trying to get a real sense of people's ideal spending and then kind of what's, you know, their desired spending, but where's what's the essential spending? Where, where's that? pressure point and try to create a strategy that has a really small chance of going below that pressure yeah. point. Uh, and, uh, yeah. This may not be something that Ryan wants to hear, but uh, I think the easiest way after you've done it is to have a buffer, which is some extra retirement funds you're not using and, and let your heirs be, be the buffer. So if things go poorly, you say, well, I'm not going to uh, bequeath as much as I might have. So, so if you have a certain amount you can guarantee and then have a little bit of excess that may uh, may go to your heirs or may be drawn back into the, the fray. It gives you more flexibility. There's lots of ways to get to it, um, and a lot of people choose that approach. They, you know, Let's just say they have a half a million dollars, but they might reserve 100000 mm-hmm. But I have this other hundred. i I'm just going to keep. It just makes me feel better, and I think that's okay uh, as long as their plan works with yeah. that in place. And and then even then, I'll show them, well, okay, if you do that, here's what your life looks like versus if you let loose with half of it and didn't have such yeah. a uh, – so that, that is key. And, again, when you have that flexibility and when you have reserves and when you have basically a plan, in other words, you get to schedule the emergency on your time, not mm-hmm. – it doesn't just show up and you're like, oh, heck, what are we going to do? You have to really work through that. And that's sort of the essence of financial planning, isn't it, Ryan, when yeah. it comes to retirement plan? is Aren't we just really saying – how can we get a really good concept of what these people can spend from these assets plus their income streams and be able to maintain and have a large likelihood that it's probably going to be better than that and a very small probability where we have to make an adjustment that might be to the downside temporarily. Yep. I think of it too as like how can we bring the tension down the most without sacrificing maybe the return for goals in spending during your life or maybe like Dr. Gertz is alluding to maybe an inheritance uh, down the road or a gifting, you know, a gifting strategy. 
and you can you can model it side by side. And I think for most people, they're not looking to have a tumultuous retirement. Their goal is probably give me calm waters all the way and everything will be peachy. Um, and you can do that many different ways. Withholding money, like you say, Dr. Gear, it's 100000 in the example you gave, or having less bond exposure. But whatever gives you the peace of mind to stay invested during the tough times is really ultimately the successful uh, investing option. I think so. But people trying to do that on their own might not have an idea of Certainly. what it's costing them in terms of lifestyle or legacy by doing that. Yep. And if there's any one key to having it, that may be a fine plan, but you want to make sure you're going into it and you price that and say, look, that's one alternative. That's one scenario. And here's what your life looks out if you keep doing what you're doing uh, versus something else. Yeah. Go ahead, Ed. <laughs> oh, Ed Bond joined me. I thought he's probably coming in yeah. here to yell at me or something. Are you going to tell me that uh, the game starts in about uh, five minutes or so? Yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Always good to see Ed right. Bond. You know, he keeps this place all glued together. Right. And Paul, going back to what you said, though, uh, people may think that you're, you're the disciplinarian saying you're, you always have to save more and spend less. They're probably – a number of situations where it's just the opposite. Well, I, I'm going through some of those right now. Uh, you know, suddenly I'll have a client that, you know, uh, a year ago had uh, $4 million, and now they have six, let's say, and, and, and they're halfway into retirement. And, you know, they don't need – I shouldn't put it that way. To achieve what they really want to do personally, just for their life, their, that plan is way overfunded, and I might suggest – and they'll ask, you know, do you think I should give money to my children? And I'll say, well, yes. Now, my idea of the gift is always much larger <laughs> than what they had in mind. Uh, I had a conversation with somebody that said, why don't you give each child a half a million dollars? And he said, well, I was thinking in terms of different, a much smaller number. <laughs> and he said, can I do that? But, again, I think that's the DNA of people that grew up in the shadows of the Depression. They look down at these big numbers, and they're big, and they're significant numbers whether they're six million or six hundred thousand or sixty million. Uh, all right, start to wrap up at ten forty three. Uh so I'm finding even that a challenge though, Fred, to get because right. there's always this yeah, but you know, I remember the stories about people losing everything in the mm -hmm. global depression. So the biggest challenge I'm having now since people's portfolios have gone up spectacularly, it's, it's nothing I did. It's just the power of the capital markets and the discipline to, to hang in there and believe us that it's in their best interest to, to, to keep doing that. And so that's, that's my biggest challenge these days is trying to get my clients to understand that they really could do a lot more than, right. than they think they can. Yeah, one other point, too, we're running out of time, but uh, you always say uh, past uh, returns are not necessarily predicting the future. So right, right now, every advisor is going to come around and tell you how great they did the last year or so. But uh, that's not because of great advice. It's because of great markets. So right. don't don't base your expectations on the last uh, year or so. I agree. And because, you know, those returns are somebody already else got those. It doesn't tell us much about next year's returns. But I think added to your flexibility rule, and then uh, we'll be done here in about 45 seconds, is um, the other thing along with flexibility is if you could just not interrupt compounding. I mean, if, if, there's, if there's any secret to the left if i if i am successful if there's any secret to that success it's just that i really tried to intervene anytime a client wanted to interrupt compounding that is i'm scared i want to get out and that's the number one fight since dow's been at 1000 to dow 36000 now that's the fight i gladly i gladly 
fight because I think it ends up saving my clients' lives. Well, guys, thanks for uh, joining me on a condensed version of the show. Um, kind of scrambles me a little bit, to, you know, to not have my normal time, but I'm happy to help out here. So go Illini. I hope the women's basketball team does great today. And thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks for Paul Rudy's On The Money Radio Show. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On The Money here on DWS, paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. You can join Paul on the second and fourth Tuesdays of each month here on News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM. The views expressed in this program were those of the host and the guests and not necessarily those of the station. You're listening to News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM WDWS Champaign-Urbana, a Champaign multimedia group station. 